Well, hi, everybody. Welcome, welcome. My name is Melissa C. I'm a recovered compulsive overeater in New York. And, um, you know, I've recovered um, from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. And um, my, um, my recovery, uh, you know, is, um, has been profound, has just been transformative. It's, it's transformed every aspect of my life. For those of you that are new here, um, you know, many of us come here because we can't stop eating and, um, and we can't stand what it does to our bodies. And, uh, you know, at my, at the, the height of my disease, I was over 300 pounds and I could not stop eating no matter how much I wanted to, no matter how much I tried, no matter how much information I had, I could not stop, not on my own power. That's the key here. And so tonight we're gonna discuss, there's a solution, which, you know, like give you a little clue, the solution is not human power. It's not gonna be human power. So let's open it up. We'll look at page 17. We are people it says who normally would not mix, but there exists among us a fellowship, a friendliness and an understanding, which is indescribably wonderful. We are like the passengers of a great liner, the moment after rescue from shipwreck, when camaraderie, joyousness and democracy pervade the vessel from steerage to captain's table. Unlike the feelings of the ship's passengers, however, our joy in escape from disaster does not subside as we go our individual ways. The feeling of having shared in a common peril is one element in the powerful cement which binds us, but that in itself would never have held us together as we're now joined. The tremendous fact for every one of us is that we have discovered a common solution. We have a way out on which we can absolutely agree and upon which we can join in brotherly and harmonious action. This is the great news this book carries to those who still suffer from alcoholism and for us, for myself, compulsive overeating. So the paragraph talks about friendships that come from being rescued together. And friendships are awesome. Friendships are important. And, um, and relationships can be really helpful. But those relationships, you know, when you're just form a relationship based on a common peril, don't endure once the rescuing is done and the celebration is over, you know. But ours continues indefinitely. Because for people like me, in order to remain rescued, we have to help in the rescuing of still others. So we remain attached to one another. And our recovery depends on growth of our spiritual condition, which is only sustainable through harmonious action. We can only have this, you know, powerful, transformative thing if I am working with others harmoniously. We're bound together through self-sacrifice and through working with others. That's what holds us together. And those who have been rescued consistently get back in the water and rescue others. In fact, we can't remain rescued 
unless we do that very thing. So if we just go off into the sunset, right? You get rescued and you're like, later guys, see you later. We won't remain rescued because we need a relationship with God, which for people like me only come through this type of work, this real endeavor. Page 18 says an illness of this sort, and we've come to believe it as an illness, involves those about us in a way no other human sickness can. If a person has cancer, all are sorry for him and no one is angry or hurt, but not so with the alcoholic illness, for there goes all annihilation of all the things worthwhile in our life. So, uh, you know, our, my disease of compulsive eating rarely, it, you know, to the outside world, it's rarely even viewed as a disease or an addiction. They don't really think of it that way. They think of it as um, lacking self-control, right? Lacking discipline, uh, sometimes lacking information. A lot of people wanted to tell me nutritional advice as if I didn't know that, but they don't understand it's a disease, you know? And there's so little understanding and we actually don't even give it to ourselves. We often hear ourselves saying things like, well, I was bad. You know, I ate cause I, you know, I was bad on my diet or I was bad on my food plan or, you know, um, and the frustrating thing with this disease is that the sick person often has no enthusiasm for the treatment. Like we're here, we're desperate and like ask you to do something, ask me to do something that was a little inconvenient or that sort of flew against my own human logic. I was like, mm, yeah, I don't wanna do that. That sounds hard. I, I'm not interested, right? And so very often we have no enthusiasm for the treatment. We're lectured, we're ridiculed, you know, and, and fat shamed. I mean, that's part of what's, what happens to people, you know, and although I suffered miserably, you know, so did my family. I wanna say so did my young family. I did not take this problem of mine seriously for a long time. And hearing that it's a disease was an important part of the process, although it wasn't enough to be the entire solution. So just getting the diagnosis is not the solution. There's more involved. Doctors repeatedly attempted to scare me and family members sat me down to tell me that they were worried and nothing worked, except something obviously did, right? or I wouldn't be here talking to you today. So we do have a solution, that's the good news. And you know, so what did persuade me then? If it wasn't the people in my lives, if it wasn't doctors, what did persuade me was other compulsive eaters. Page 18, gonna describe that. But the ex-problem drinker who has found this solution, who is properly armed with facts about himself can generally win the entire confidence of another alcoholic in a few hours. Until such an understanding is reached, little or nothing can be accomplished. So, you know, I think about it like, you know, if I had a heart condition, I would go to a doctor, right? And the qualifications for that doctor being able to help me wouldn't be that he has a heart condition as well. It wouldn't be, it would be irrelevant. But in this particular you know, disease, the only people that can help me, the only people that can really offer me hope 
or other sufferers of this illness, other people. Um, you know, and I say here, we're also being given directions on how to carry the message, how to win the confidence of others. How do we win the confidence of others? First of all, you have to be an X problem drinker or, you know, not just a non-drinker or not just a problem drinker who's still drinking, right? So it has to be really someone who's, who's not having this problem anymore, but who once did. And when we carry the message, we don't use frothy emotional appeal. You know, frothy emotional appeal is like the way that my family appealed to me through a lot of emotions. They sat me down, sometimes crying. I had a few people cry to me that they were really worried about me, that I was gonna, you know, I was gonna leave my children without a mother. Um, I've had, you know, lots, that's frothy emotion. But we don't do that with one another. When we sit down and we carry the message, part of our solution, mm -mm, we don't do that. What we do is we share facts. What kind of facts? Facts about ourselves. That's how we carry the message. And so we talk about ourselves and our experiences. And what I find most seems to draw a fellow compulsive overeater in is when I share a story of my own suffering because that piques interest. It gets the attention of the addict. And the next paragraph also tells me precisely how I'm gonna approach someone. That the man who is making the approach has had the same difficulty. That he obviously knows what he's talking about. That his home deportment shouts at the new prospect that he is a man with a real answer. That he has no attitude of holier than thou, nothing whatever, except the sincere desire to be helpful, that there are no fees to pay, no axes to grind, no people to please, no lectures to be endured. These are the conditions we found most effective. Okay, so what's helpful? The right information delivered from a calm and hopefully humble messenger. We have to be calm, you know, People are not convinced when the person carrying the message has an attitude of superiority or has an ax to grind, has like something that they're angry about, you know, meaning a complaint, you know, that they must discuss. And I would say, you know, if I came here and I had, I had a real issue with those pay and way programs and I was gonna come here and tell you how rotten those other, you know, programs were how they take your money and they do all those things. That's not helpful. Or if I come here with an attitude about other groups of OA, other groups, other meetings, other, other ways, right? That's not helpful either. You know, so the recovered fellow should have the right demeanor. The way that they carry themselves is louder than their words page 19 through 20, of necessity, there will have to be discussion of matters, medical, psychiatric, social, and religious. We're aware that these matters are from their very nature controversial. Nothing would please us so much as to write a book which would contain no basis for contention or argument. We shall do our utmost to achieve that ideal. 
most of us sense that real tolerance of other people's shortcomings and viewpoints and respect for their opinions or attitudes, which makes us more useful to others. Our very lives as ex-problem drinkers depend upon our constant thought of others and how we may help meet their needs. Okay, so my life is gonna depend on helping others, thinking of others and helping others. That's part of our solution. You know, and in recovery, there may be conversations that involve topics that might seem to incite disagreements and debates and disputes, but our solution means that we're going to proceed carefully. We don't set out to instigate problems. Why not? Why shouldn't we? If we know, if we believe we're right, why shouldn't we come with an attitude where we're instigating problems? Because it's not useful and it's not helpful. Our solution is to be useful. It's to be helpful. It's to meet people's needs. We have to be tolerant of shortcomings and viewpoints. And when I say tolerant, tolerant for us means desensitized, a little thicker skinned, not so uncomfortable with every little opinion that's different from mine. In fact, my life depends on it. You know, and I came here thinking my life was going to depend on my food plan, right? And that's just, that's just a diet. That's just one part of it, right? So now we're going to look at the different types of drinkers, right? Or for us, the eaters. And page 20 through 21 says, moderate drinkers have little trouble in giving up liquor entirely. If they have a good reason for it, they can take it or leave it alone. So I would say those are people who just don't really have a problem at all. Because if you can give it up, if you have a good reason, like you put on a little bit of weight, your pants don't fit, you stop, right? You like somebody, you wanna get a little more attention from that person, or you just don't feel as comfortable in your skin, right? Okay, you put it down, great, no problem. Um, and then there's the hard drinkers. They may have the habit badly enough to gradually impair them physically and mentally. It may cause them to die a few years before his time. But if there is sufficient strong reason, ill health, falling in love, changes of environment, or the warnings of a doctor becomes operative, this man can also stop or moderate. Although he might find it difficult and troublesome and may even need medical attention. Mm. So I would say these are the people who can have success at a pay and way program, right? And actually there are lots of people, you know, who um, doctors recommend bariatric surgery for them. And if they get the bariatric surgery and they're just a hard eater, it works, right? Their stomach gets made smaller, they eat less food, they don't regain that weight. They, they can live within that boundary. And, you know, so it's a good option for those people. You can also sometimes find those kinds of people at OA meetings and they're welcomed here. They're welcomed here because the only requirement for membership at Overeaters Anonymous is a desire to stop eating compulsively. 
So those people are more than welcome to come. They can get well with support and a good food plan. And for me, I was always trying that approach. I wanted to be that kind. I wanted to do, for me, I wanted to do what I called OA light. I wanted to do like the easy OA program, you know? Um, but what I couldn't, why not? Because here it's gonna describe, but what about the real alcoholic? He may start off as a moderate drinker. He may or may not become a continuous hard drinker, but at some stage in his drinking career, he begins to lose all control of his liquor consumption once he starts to drink. So here we're getting a clearer understanding of what a real compulsive overeater is. And why do we need to know this now, right? I thought we were gonna start talking about the solution. Why do I have to really find out specifics about this? Well, unless I'm convinced that I am the real compulsive eater, I likely won't feel the need for the solution. The chapter continues to describe the real alcoholic to further help us determine if we truly are in this category. In page 22, it's gonna describe it a little more. Why does he behave like this? If hundreds of experiences have shown him that one drink means another debacle with all its attendant suffering and humiliation, why is it that he takes that one drink? Why can't he stay on the water wagon? What has become of his common sense and willpower that he still sometimes displays with respects to other matters? Perhaps there will never be a full answer to these questions. Opinions vary considerably as to why the alcoholic reacts differently from normal people. We are not sure why once a certain point is reached, little can be done for him. We cannot answer the riddle. Okay, so the solution, by the way, does not involve discovering why we became compulsive overeaters. That's therapy. And that might be great, but that's not this program. Too much for me, too much of my time and energy was wasted on trying to uncover the why. And I say why is an immature question for someone like me. And why do I say it's immature? Well, you know, because if I can identify the why, first of all, when I wanna find out the why, basically I'm hoping to find out who I can blame for this. And generally, it's not gonna be me. I wanna find, I wanna find an assigned blame to my parents. That, that's really my experience. And some sort of circumstance that befell me. I wanted to blame society for the, for the horrible images it gave young girls about their bodies, right? I wanted to blame the diet industry. I wanted to blame, you know, Glamour Magazine. Um, you know, my mom and my dad, I want all these other things. And, you know, I found out, by the way, um, my parents definitely made mistakes. Okay, I'm a mom, I've made plenty of mistakes too. Um, I don't believe that my parents did anything deliberately to hurt me. And even if they did, the identification of the why still won't get me well. 
because, you know, I came into recovery. I was, you know, for the last, right, hopefully the last time I was in my early forties. My parent, I was already a grown woman living on my own. I'm 53 right now. So if I'm still going to look to blame my parents, I'm living, I'm living a child's like view. Um, you know, and really when I want to know why, what I'm really saying is I don't like this, make it different, you know? And it's like when my kids would ask me why they have to go to bed when they were little, they don't really want to know the explanation. What they were hoping is that I would let them stay up late, <laughs> right? What they were hoping is that it would be different. And that's what I found for me when I spent too much time in the why. So even if the why gets answered, that's not gonna be the solution. I can't go back in a time machine and undo the past. That's not part of my solution. Page 23, these observations would be academic and pointless if our friend never took the first drink, thereby setting a terrible cycle in motion. Therefore, the main problem of the alcoholic centers in his mind rather than in his body. If you ask him why he started on that last bender, the chances are he will offer you any one of a hundred alibis. Okay, alibis, explanations, reasons, excuses, defenses. And actually, you know, for me, there are lies. My alibis are the lies my mind creates to get my mind to eat. And, you know, when I think about that, of course, I'm going to believe it when I'm living like that because. Who created the lie? The person who needs to believe it, right? So I've already believed it before it was even, you know, conjured up in my brain. My brain was creating the lie that it knew it would fall for. And it fell for the new one every time. Um, you know, and sometimes these excuses have certain plausibility, but none of them really make sense in light of the havoc an alcoholic's drink of doubt creates. So in a weird way, these lies my mind tells me that gets me to give in, they sound believable. And really, you know, like my mind would make the extra bite or helping of food choice sound like no big deal. My mind minimizes the danger, right? My mind creates this lie that makes it not sound so dangerous for me. And it sounds like the philosophy of the man who having a headache beats himself on the head with a hammer so that he can feel the ache. So one of the lies that my mind would tell me is I'm upset, eat, I'm uncomfortable, eat, my feelings are hurt, eat, right? And that's like beating myself on a head with a hammer because the consequences were far more painful than the circumstances that were initially causing me to eat right? The actual what, what became once I ate was more painful than whatever I was enduring in the moment. But here's the problem. If I draw this fallacious reasoning, the mistaken, misleading, erroneous, deceptive, false, wrong, and untrue to my attention, I'm going to laugh it off or I become irritated and refuse to talk. You know, so for me, you know, a really good example for me, a great way that the lie would come in is I, I wouldn't feel good. Something would physically be bothering me, whether it was a cold or a headache or something physical, 
And I immediately had a whole array of foods that I believed would make me feel better. You know, I'm the person that if I had a stomach virus, I had to have the ginger ale. I had to have the saltine crackers. I had to have the toast, whatever it was, as if the stomach virus was more deadly than the allergy and, and the consequences of being 300 pounds with dangerously high blood pressure, right? So it's like a headache isn't nearly as big a problem as a head wound that you cause by hitting yourself with a hammer, right? That's really what they're saying here. And I, I would say for me, I ate mostly to ease the pain I felt that was caused by my compulsive eating because nothing so much as soothed the pain of living in a 300 pound body quite as, as much as ice cream, right? Ice cream is what I turned to, to live with the pain of living in obesity. Makes no sense. Page 23, the third paragraph. But everybody hopefully awaits the day when the sufferer will rouse himself from his lethargy and exert his power of will. And by the way, it wasn't just my family or our loved ones that wanted us to pull ourselves together and get motivated and get moving. You know, it's usually us too. We're waiting for this day when we're gonna get this thing. For me, which is why I lived my whole life saying, someday, someday when I'm thin, oh. Someday when I'm blank, oh. And I would say I was only partly alive. That's what it felt like I was partly alive because it was like I was watching life from inside the window. Right, I was on the inside looking out the window. Page 24, the first paragraph, it says the fact that most alcoholics for reasons yet obscure have lost the power of choice in drinking, in eating. I lost the power of my own ability to choose. Our so-called willpower becomes practically non-existent. We're unable at certain times to bring into the consciousness with sufficient force, the memory of the suffering and humiliation of even a week or a month ago without defense against the first drink. And so I know like Janet's got an awesome explanation, you know, which is available on Recovery Jam um, about the broken bridge. And basically what I would say for myself is that I have willpower that disappears without warning. And I like to say that my willpower has an expiration date, but this date is a secret. It's unpredictable. It's not like the expiration date on a carton of milk. It's like, I think it's there. I think I have this willpower. I go to call upon it when I need it the most and it's gone. It's just gone. And so I have a memory that's unreliable because the pain is hazy in the moments when I need to remember how painful this is. And yet I have a great memory for consequences in many other areas of my life. In fact, I've often shared this story about, you know, speeding on the highway. And, and that's not a great story to tell because I don't want to encourage anybody to speed on the highway. So I'm going to 
But I, funny enough, yesterday I was taking a drive up to Albany. And when I was in college, I went for a brief time to Albany. I remember I got pulled over and I remember the exact location where I was pulled over. By the way, I'm 53. So it's 30 some odd years. <laughs> I drove up to Albany and as I'm driving, I went, oh, I remember I got pulled over here. If I were really speeding at that point, I would have easily been able to call upon my memory and slow down, right? Okay, the almost certain consequences though that follow taking even a glass of beer do not crowd into the mind to deter us. If these thoughts occur, they're hazy and readily supplanted with the old threadbare idea that this time we shall handle ourselves like other people. There is a complete failure of the kind of defense that keeps one from putting his hand on a hot stove. So consequences don't work. Rewards and consequences are generally very effective when it comes to managing behaviors, which is why I know that the problem I have is unmanageable, right? That's what we're told, powerless and unmanageable. I cannot manage this problem. And for me, I knew that I wasn't going to be able to handle the food like normal people. In fact, when I was getting ready to binge, I knew that I was going to binge. My memory actually was not so hazy that I didn't think I wasn't going to binge. Here's what it was, though, for me. What I would forget was that I cared. I, in those moments, I didn't think I cared. The feeling that I really cared was gone. And I actually would think, well, I'll do better tomorrow. I'll get it. That's what I forgot, that I didn't have any more power tomorrow than I had in that moment. You know, I always thought that Monday I was going to be able to get it together. And I lived with the dream that one day I would wake up and have willpower. You know, another example for me, it was um, sadly in, in my freshman year of college, I partied really hard. Um, I drank a lot. You know, I smoked a lot and I failed out my freshman year. I was humiliated by that. I remembered my parents saying, we can't believe that you did that. We just never expected that from you, never. And I vowed to get it together. And I don't have a thank you. You know, that's not my problem. I'm not, a, I'm not an alcoholic. Um, um, so the consequences worked there. The painful humiliation of failing out of school was enough because I got it together after that, right? I figured I can't do that anymore. And I was able to get it together, but I've had consequences from compulsive eating. That didn't work. You know, that didn't work for me. I couldn't just like say I was gonna like get it together on my own unaided power. You know, so when this sort of thinking is fully established in the individual with an alcoholic tendencies, he's probably placed himself beyond human aid. That's the point here. Our solution is beyond human aid and unless locked up, may die or go permanently insane. But for the grace of God, 
there would have been thousands more convincing demonstrations. So many want to stop, but cannot. You know, I looked up the word grace. Grace is the spontaneous, unmerited gift of divine favor and the divine influence for regeneration, right? For rebirth, for regrowth right? For being reformed, for being transformed. And I love it because it's unmerited, which means you don't have to deserve it. If you're worried that this solution is not available for you because you're not worthy, you know, yeah, we're not. That's right. You might not be, you might not, you might be, but you might not be. And, you know, God is gracious. That's what, that's what we're told. And so it means that he's favorably inclined towards us. He wants to show us favor, to do what's best for us. So my entire recovery, my solution is gonna become reliant on the consideration and favor of my creator, which is unmerited, unearned, and always available. It's only by aligning myself that I can live in a state where I can access grace. That's the solution. There is a solution. Here we go. Almost none of us like the self-searching, the leveling of our pride, the confession of our shortcomings, which the process requires for its successful consummation. So in order to get grace for us, for people like me, I have to have soul searching, have to have my pride leveled, I have to confess my shortcomings. That's the process that, you know, required, that's required. And what we saw is that it really worked in others. So we might not like it, we might not want to, but it works in others. And we have come to believe in the hopelessness and the futility of life as we have been living it. We have found much of heaven and we have been rocketed into a fourth dimension of existence of which we have not even dreamed. So I have to say, I did not dream about living in the fourth dimension. Wasn't even on my radar. I dreamed, my dreams were so small. I dreamed of wearing smaller clothes. That was my whole dream. My dreams were tiny, you know? And we get the fourth dimension, living in a recovered state, living in a transformed life, right? The great fact is just this and nothing less, that we have had deep and effective spiritual experiences, which have revolutionized our whole attitude toward life, toward our fellows and towards God's universe. So what happens is we have a revolution inside ourselves. The central fact of our lives today is the absolute certainty that our creator has entered into our hearts and lives in a way which is indeed miraculous. He has commenced to accomplish those things for us which we could never do by ourselves. So what we get is that we get a relationship where God comes inside, takes up residence inside my heart. That's what happened. I have a relationship with a living, loving creator 
that's gracious and powerful. And I love one of my favorite names, which really kind of explains this gracious, this powerful, loving force. It's in We Agnostics on page 56. The presence of infinite power and love. That's the solution that we get, guys. We get a relationship, a process. We have a process that when complete, allows us to have a relationship with a power that is infinitely powerful and infinitely loving, all powerful and all loving. And it comes and it lives inside our hearts, right? And it revolutionizes our whole way of thinking of being that we live in another dimension. And in that dimension, eating compulsively is uninterested. It's just not where I want to be when you're living in the fourth dimension, when God takes up residence in our hearts. Bottom of page 25. If you're as seriously alcoholic as we were, we believe there's no middle of the road solution. So it's like, either you're going to have a solution where God lives inside your heart, changes your whole attitude, you live in the fourth dimension, or you don't, right? That's the two choices. And we were in a position where life was becoming impossible. And if we had passed into the region from which there's no return through human aid, remember human aid, willpower, consequences, humiliation, pain, memory, those are all human aid. We've passed into a spot where none of that works. So we only have two choices. One, go to the bitter end, blotting out the consciousness of our intolerable situation as best we could, and the other to accept spiritual help. And this we did because we honestly wanted to and were willing to make the effort. And I remember when I really read that paragraph, that's a paragraph that just, lands heavy on me, deep in my heart. It touches something really profound. It's a pivotal paragraph. Basically, I'm left with two choices. And both seemed extreme. Door A or door B. I couldn't enter both. And I can't hang out in the hall anymore. There was no more hall. There was either I was going to go this door or this door. One, I could eat, I could go on eating and be prepared to eat until I blotted out how miserable my life was. I just needed to eat myself into like a coma state where I had no awareness of what life was like for me. You know, and for me, I remember that when I was like that, I ate until my mouth bled. That's where it was for me. When I ate that way, I ate until I had severe physical consequences. You know, my mouth bled and my stomach hurt all the time. My life was getting, you know, so sucky, I felt, that I could just try to eat until numb. And actually, it was starting to become physically impossible to get numb. I needed to take in more 
than I actually physically could. And the other choice was to do everything I was directed for me at the time by my sponsor and to this program so I could get help. And I really wanted to. You know, I wanted that vital spiritual experience that they talk about on page 27. You know, page vital spiritual experiences, huge emotional displacements and rearrangements, ideas, emotions, and attitudes, which were once the guiding forces of our lives. Of these men are suddenly cast to one side and a completely new set of conceptions and motives began to dominate them. You know, there's an asterisk at that point that tells you to go to the spiritual experience, which I know we'll study another time. Um, basically, it just tells you that this vital spiritual experience is going to be a personality change, meaning you're going to have to be ready to be someone different. And I remember reaching that point, I wanted to be someone different, you know? And we say it's like our roots grasp new soil. We live in another dimension, new soil, new roots. The chapter continues to reassure those of us who have not had strong religious backgrounds, as well as those who have, that it doesn't matter what you come here believing. Page 28, we have no desire to convince anyone that there's only one way in which faith can be acquired. If what we have learned and felt and seen means anything at all, it means that all of us, whatever our race, creed, or color, are the children of a living creator with whom we may form a relationship upon simple and understandable terms as soon as we're willing and honest enough to try. So we need a relationship with God. That's the solution. And it doesn't matter what your religion is coming in here. It doesn't matter if you have a whole past of difficulties with understanding and believing God. You know, those having religious affiliations will find nothing disturbing to their beliefs or ceremonies. There's no friction among us over such matters. We think it's no concern of ours what religious bodies our members identify with as individuals. In fact, page 29 assures us, we find such convictions no great obstacle to a spiritual experience. Each individual in the personal stories described in his own language and from his own point of, of view, the way he established his relationship with God. So there's a solution means that we are going to establish a relationship when someone asks you, what is the solution? The answer is right here. To establish a relationship, a friendship, a companionship, a connection, and all the actions we take should be in order to establish this relationship and grow this relationship. And I would say after all these pages of there's a solution, that's really the whole point that all of our shares and all of our stories should always center around this overarching goal. Our goal is to get a relationship with God. And lucky with us, lucky for us, we have the directions, the directions for establishing just that. And with that, I'll pass.